Leadership Show with Andy Peck. Great to have your company again on The Leadership Show, my weekly attempt to provide support and encouragement as you seek to use any influence you have that God's ways may be known and spread. I'm Andy Peck, your host, looking forward to what I believe will be a key conversation this week, even if we're covering tough ground. The words leadership and power typically go together in most people's minds, but you will be aware that the misuse of power is one of people, many people's main criticism of leadership, whether this be in the political realm, the boardroom, or indeed the leadership of a church or charity. You'll no doubt be aware of high-profile stories within the UK church and wider of the misuse of power, but many of us will know lower-profile stories too where power has not been used well. To talk about this topic, I'm joined by Marcus Honeyset, who for over 10 years now has led a ministry called Living Leadership, which in his own words is a collaborative network of people captivated by the grace of God and called to grow disciple-making leaders. He's been my guest many times before and has been working on a book looking at the misuse of power and position due to be published next year. We won't be talking about any particular high-profile story, but we will be aiming to shed light on this important topic so that whatever you lead and wherever you lead it, you better understand the power dynamic to what you're doing. So welcome back, uh, Marcus, to The Leadership Show. It's nice to be here. Um, so we must start by our understanding of what leadership is at all. So maybe you can give us your working uh, definition within uh, your ministry. Thanks, Andy. So yes, pretty important to uh, start by defining what we're talking when we talk about leadership, because it's fundamentally different to any other kind of leadership in any other sphere in the world, in that it is about serving like Jesus. It's not about being top dog. So I want to just give five very quick foundational things that uh, we teach all the time in living leadership about biblical spiritual leadership. We think this underlies an understanding of uh, the conversation. So this, this is the backdrop. First thing, Leadership's a spiritual gift. Uh, Romans 12, 8, if a man's gift is leadership, let him govern diligently. So spiritual gifts, that's uh, manifestations, showings of the Holy Spirit for the common good. So they're us being stewards of God's grace for other people's nourishing and flourishing. So first thing, spiritual gift. The second is that the point of Christian leadership is building up the body and maturity and love and effectiveness. Ephesians 4, to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So the body of Christ is built up until we reach unity in the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. So that's, that's the point of Christian leadership, the healthiness of the body and all the disciples within it being helped to play their part in God's purposes. We're equippers and facilitators. Third, how do we do that? Philippians 1, 25 and 26, I want to continue with you and work with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, joy in Jesus is going to overflow on account of me. So the aim of biblical spiritual leadership is the disciples glorying abundantly in Jesus, full of joy in him. Christian leaders are not top generals. We are under shepherds helping the flock enjoy and feed on God. Fourthly, in practice, what that looks like is teaching, shepherding, modeling, and spiritual parenting, 
so that they become imitators of us and the Lord and uh, models themselves. Fifthly, lastly, and that's so brief, last one's very important, is that Christian leaders lead out of weakness and not out of strength. That's 2 Corinthians 12. Leading out of strength is worldly leadership. The Lord makes Christian leaders weak and progressively weaker and weaker in order to demonstrate the sufficiency of his grace and the fact that he is the one who's doing it. There's, the, the words power and authority, I guess, have to also be, be understood, and not least, of course, because uh, the, the New Testament was written in a context where there was also other power and authority being exercised. Mm, yeah, for sure. Uh, power, uh, that, that basically means having the ability to act, doesn't it? The ability to act. Authority means having the right to act. But power and authority for what? Our aim is to use our power and authority, just like in the New Testament, to serve in equipping the disciples for their ministries so that other people know Jesus and they, they grow in holiness and churches grow in love and maturity and everybody abounds in hope and joy given by the Holy Spirit. Uh, there is a lot of reflection in some parts of the Christian community in the UK at the moment about whether we have built our leadership cultures on power. The big person, the impressive resume, charismatic personalities who command large platforms and large salaries, ability to raise large sums of money for shiny projects. You know, who, who knows who, who has the powerful connections? And it's just wrong. Uh, yeah, so are we using our power and authority rightly? All leaders have some power. The question is not, is there power in the system? It's, are we using it in biblical and servant ways? You know, power in and of itself is 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 something what God wants us to exercise. That's, you know, the mandate of, I guess, in Genesis, you know, image bearers, you're to fill the earth and subdue it. You know, there's, there's lots in scripture that encourage good use of the ability to act, as you've suggested. Uh, for absolute sure, um, power is a given, um, authority is a given. The question is, how is it healthfully exercised? Mm. Uh, it's really not hard to find biblical teaching and examples of it being done well and of it being done badly. I guess the, the, the first best place to look is the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 3 particularly laying out so clearly that Christ-like character and the ability to teach the word of God are the foundations for, for Christian leadership. That's that's how churches are led and fed. It's no good just teaching the word without the character. And godly character on its own doesn't make you a leader if you're unable to teach people the scriptures. Different uh, streams and denominations obviously think differently about what the limits of leadership authority are, either expressly drawn from the Bible or, or from historic practice. There, there are four main approaches, basically. So the first is leaders can only insist on what Scripture commands. The second is that they can insist on what the congregation has agreed. The third would be what the denomination has agreed. And the fourth would be what the authority figure, such as a bishop or a pope, has taught. But however you weight those things and the limits of their authority, the absolutely critical thing is that things are done transparently. And certainly if leaders unaccountably contravene agreements or doctrines that they entered into as conditions of their being appointed, then at that point, you know, they're acting way beyond their legitimate authority. Right. 
So, so if we take the, the average church leader, um, maybe you can outline the kind of power that they have and how it can go wrong. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so the, the average church leader has two main types of power. So the first is their formal legitimate authority. And that works by agreed criteria and mechanisms, procedures, policies that are designed to ensure that power is exercised in the light. Uh, most leaders don't like constraints. Uh, I think constraints ought to function like seatbelts in a car. Um, they don't stop you driving. They just keep everybody else safe. Yeah, yes, indeed. Um, yes. They don't stop you getting to the destination. Um, you know, sometimes it feels uh, uh, more freeing to drive without them, but you're stupid if you do. So formal legitimate authority is accountable. In the New Testament, it's resolutely plural. It's transparent and it's embodied in the church community. And those kinds of things keep everybody protected from power being misused. Now, here's, here's the second kind of authority that your jobbing Christian leader has. It is still entirely legitimate, but it's informal, it's relational. So it's our, our pastoring, our mentoring, our one-to-ones. It's when people trust our wisdom and we gain relational influence with them. And uh, personality obviously feeds into that. And all of us in Christian leadership for a while know that that kind of relational authority in practice is far more powerful than the formal kind. But the difficulty with it is that um, it's less transparent. It's less accountable. It's far easier to... Uh, uh, to, to accumulate relational power. You can, you can gather it over time, and then you can trade it in for formal authority. You can use it to buy formal power. So if you think about lobbying your friends so that you can create enough momentum that when you present your actions and decisions, they're done deals, what you've done there is you've used your informal authority to evade, avoid, or override, or increase your legitimate power. And as soon as you've done that, you've gone wrong. When leaders move from legitimate to illegitimate, I'll give you very high odds. It started when they used their relational power to get something that they couldn't get with their formal authority. I, I think that's the start of the slippery slope. I think that's really well articulated, Marcus, if I may say so. I. And I think you've just put your finger on things that I've I've seen happening, but I, I wouldn't have quite the words for. Um, so um, I, I guess it, uh, for, for leaders who are pressured and, and uh, maybe needing someone to do something for them mm. or for the church, yeah. then they will lean on the people they know, doing what you're saying. That's the informal influence. And so people... You know, they, they talk about, you know, your your arm being um, twisted, you know, or behind your back or whatever, you know, because yeah. that's kind of leaders get used to doing that to get their to get things done. And they think, well, it's legitimate because the church benefits and they I maybe need to encourage this person to get on and do what they're doing. But obviously, yeah. you've just said it's not really right. Now, you see, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head there, Andy. It is slippery. Hmm. Because we take the first step over the, the red line, thinking that we're serving others. Mm. We misuse those relationships 
and we justify because we don't think we're being selfish. We think we're serving them. Mm. We think we're serving the mission. Mm. Uh, I mean, which of us has not um, lent on somebody to say, can you just get somebody along to an evangelistic event? Not out of love for the Lord or particularly out of love for the lost, but because we don't want the evangelistic event to bomb. Yeah, yeah. Um, as soon as we've done that, we've we've gone wrong, but we might not know it. We've we've started moving into doing kingdom work, but not into kingdom ways. And we've started to a greater or lesser degree to manipulate for the sake of control. And once you've gone there, you're you're, you're in this category where where it is illegitimate, but it's serving others. But from there, it's quite easy then to slip into the next category, which is illegitimate, but serving yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, these things are not the worst misuse of power, but they are the first misuse of power. And, it, and it's really subtle. Another subtle thing I think goes, that goes on is this. If a minister has or thinks they have um, uh, an unmeetable set of demands and expectations upon them. If they're working 70 hours a week and they're, they're wrecked, but they can't see how to get out of it. If they think that those expectations are imposed upon them by the church, it's no surprises if they try to share that round by dumping some of that back on other people and guilting them into, into doing it. So it might not start with, with their need to push themselves forward it might start out of self-protection from unmeetable demands by the church if you can also justify that doing so gets good outcomes that actually is the is the first place that happens when you're getting good outcomes then it disguises the fact that they're not happening in completely godly ways and you can leverage the good outcomes in order to try to um exceed your authority um, so given that, given that we're all potentially victims of all this, what do leaders and churches need to do to protect us against our worst self? Yeah, that, well, that's a good question for every listener, isn't it? What would protect other people against the worst version of you? Um, so, so two questions are in my mind, really. How to spot danger signs in ourselves and others? And what needs to be in place to ensure that use of power and position remain godly? In terms of spotting danger signs, I think the critical thing is that no leader should live an unexamined life. 1 Timothy 3.8, leaders should be tested. If you're unexamined, it's really dangerous, but it's incredibly common because people think that by dint of having been appointed as a leader, um, they have no right to, to question you or challenge you or evaluate you. What churches have procedures in place to examine their ministries and use of position in a healthy way. But if you're a leader and you are your own referee, you can never be sure you're on a healthy path or not. One question that I think demonstrates great integrity is, uh, and maybe ask it of other people, how do I know that I am using my power in a way that honors God and serves others? And possibly an even more important one, if we want to be honest about ourselves is, how would I know if I wasn't? Would anybody have the guts to tell me? I think it comes down to a lack of openness to scrutiny. Leadership power that is safe is likely to be plain, straightforward with nothing hidden, because we want to walk in the light so that it's obvious that what is done is done in God. 
Uh, there are plenty of Bible litmus tests, aren't there? Um, some obvious ones, James 3, 1 Timothy 3, you get criteria for examining leaders where wise leadership is seen in deeds done in humility, uh, pure character, peace-loving, considerate, full of mercy, impartial, keeping a rein on the tongue. You, you, we could go on. It's really not hard to find biblical criteria against which to measure leadership character and integrity. Hospitable, worthy of respect, not a lover of money. Or, you know, Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit is quite a good place, isn't it? Mm. James and Galatians both contrast those things with other character traits that you need to put to death. But the, it is important to say nobody's sinless. The thing for leaders, just like everybody else, is not whether we're sin-free. The thing is whether we hear those kinds of things and ask, well, well, how can I submit myself to God then? And who can help me in this? Or do I hear those kinds of things and secretly think, how can I evade that and make sure that nobody gets close enough to see how I actually operate? Exposure of leaders to biblical evaluation, either in their leadership or prior to it, I think is disturbingly rare. We don't like it. We shy away from it. And the reason we do that is because it's not just evaluating how we do a task, like an annual job review. It's examining us and our hearts. Um, we, we could spend a long time, I think, on how you spot danger signs from the church's perspective. But the key question is probably, um, does your culture insist that your leaders are accountable in practice? Yeah. Uh, do you unthinkingly uh, think that they should control all decision-making bodies and processes? Um, do your leaders use corporate responsibility to ensure that people who disagree with them have to stay private? Do they lobby for support inappropriately in ways that disempower legitimate decision-making processes? Do they have an unaccountable inner ring? It's very common when leadership goes wrong that they've gathered people who are codependent with them. Are they accessible to review? And one that we are very keen to talk about in living leadership is, is this. Um, are, are your disciplinary grievance and whistleblowing procedures strong enough that they could be used against the most senior leader by the weakest person? Or are the senior leaders the ones who are exempt and protected from it? Uh, so, you know, are your policies, procedures, boundaries, codes of best practice clear and robust enough? Or can abusive leaders um, evade them by controlling systems or use of their relational capital? is an important question, but at rock bottom, procedures and policies are useful to a degree, um, but if your church culture doesn't value accountability, plurality, and transparency, then you can have all the good structures and policies you like, but they're not sufficient. They're just words on a piece of paper if you're not prepared to use them. That's really helpful, Marcus. I think, um, and I would encourage folk to listen back to the recording of this because there's some you know there's a lot of material there that that's worth uh, reflecting on um but some words about power being appropriately exercised but not appreciated because of course 
given all this culture, a lot of people who feel wounded uh, for, if you like, for good reasons, or at least they feel maybe they've a church leader said something which needed saying, which they did not like, mm. then say they they play the kind of well that's misuse of power card, mm. and and yeah. and manifestly that's also unhealthy. Yes, yeah, and you can think of a whole variety of ways in which that happens. So I I know situations where people have been accused of abusing power for teaching biblical orthodoxy. So it does need to be said that not all hurt in any human relationship, and certainly in churches, is about misuse of power. In fact, when power is under the spotlight, as it is in our culture at the moment, it can be easier to label any disagreement or anything you don't like in church as bullying. I know plenty of humble, gentle leaders who are concerned about that. But you know, power differentials, they are inevitable in all human interactions, aren't they? Where anybody is tasked with leadership. And it's right, they should be. If there's, if there's no power difference, then, for example, a mentor can't easily train an apprentice, or children can run roughshod over parents and teachers. So the, is the issue is not the existence of power. It's how it's exercised with care and love in a Christ-like fashion for the service of others. Our power is that of serving. Christian leadership's leadership of a completely different kind. And I think a final thing I'd want to say about that is whether leaders exemplify repentance. Leaders should be, should be the chief repenters, because if leaders aren't repenters, then how's anybody else meant to know how to do that? Uh, everybody else looks at leaders and think we've never had anything to repent of. So uh, our aim, our ideal is to be sinlessly perfect like you. So I think that repentance is at the core of being a tender-hearted leader. And if we're not regularly repentant, why is that? Is that we don't think that we have anything to repent of? Well, that's just wrong. Is it because we need to be in control? Is it because we think that if we have stuff to repent of, then somebody will think that we shouldn't be doing our job? Or is it because the wider church culture that we're in makes, makes repentance hard? Grace-filled cultures have to do with repentance, and grace-filled cultures are much more likely to both attract and then help grace-filled leaders to be tender-hearted and transparent and accountable when it comes to the use of power and position. Well, Marcus, thank you. We've just got a, a few moments just to, to mention uh, the book you've been working on. What were the kind of things you were focusing on, and what have you? What did you learn as you were reflecting? Well, it was a book I started writing before some of the current scandals that we're seeing were emerging. So, um, so it felt timely. But it means that um, I've been learning lots as as I've been writing. It's not a book about the worst scandals. It's about the first steps that people take into misuse of leadership. And the thing I really most want to concentrate on is what we were saying just a few minutes ago about how you step over the line inadvertently. Um, but once you've stepped over, it's much harder to step back because that requires repentance. It requires other people challenging you. It requires a Nathan to go to David and say, we don't think that's particularly godly. And that's, that's not easy for somebody to do. You kind of wonder in David's case, don't you, what would it have been like if he had had a Nathan-type conversation before the event rather than 
rather than after. Uh, so it's enabled me to talk a lot uh, to a lot of church leaders about the safeguards that we have in place to stop us and to examine our hearts. And I think it's really revealed to me that not a lot of light is shed on these kinds of things. And we really do want a spotlight for our own sake and for the good of all we serve. Um, the fact that we as Christian leaders are the people who are most likely to go wrong with the use of power in churches because we're the ones who have most of it. You know, I think if I was going to a church now as a pastor, almost the first thing I would do would be to sit down with my church wardens or my elders, my leadership team, possibly with the whole congregation and say, listen, folks, the person who is in most danger here of misusing power and position is me. And we are going to be a fellowship that helps each other in this regard. So if you think I'm going wrong, my office door is open and you have for if it's not, then batter it down. You have full permission to come in here and pin me to the carpet and help me be godly. Yeah. Because I'm going to lead and feed you by God's grace. Uh, and that has to be to some degree reciprocal. You have a responsibility to help me do that well with you and for you. But the number of congregations who think they have permission to ask and get answers to those kinds of, those kinds of questions, I think, is vanishingly small. And I think it's true in denominations as well. I'm a, a free church guy. So I sat down with some senior Anglican friends and asked them their views on whether um, these things work any better in denominational structures. And the word that kept getting used was quagmire and that these things are no easier to work out uh, in larger structures of accountability than they are when accountabilities are only within the local church. So I've been learning lots of lessons along the way. Well, thank you, Marcus, for, for sharing some of your insights today. Much, much appreciated. I'm grateful to Marcus for his insight into this uh, key topic of misusing power. And there's some tough thinking for us to do if we're not to be blind to the ways we can be tempted to misuse the legitimate power that we have as leaders. The interview focused, of course, on the church, but there may be parallels with other forms of leading. I hope you have good processes in place to help everyone that you lead and some good friends or colleagues who can keep you accountable. This is Andy Peck, grateful again for your company. Do check out podcasts and online versions of this show and join me next week for another Leadership Show. God bless. The Leadership Show with Andy Peck. Email andy.peck at premier.org.uk.